Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Thank you to the Gateway team for inviting me to share this morning. Um, I'm really excited and a little bit nervous to be sharing. Um, So in saying that, let me start with a karakia. And I'm going to pray this in te reo Māori, and then I'm going to say the English translation as well. So let's pray. E te atua, ngā mihi nui ki a koe, mō tēnei kaupapa. Lord, I thank you for this purpose, God, for this meeting this morning. Lord, would your spirit be here and moving, and would you just deposit something fresh in each of our hearts today? In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to be continuing on in the summer series looking at an individual disciple. And when I was asked to, um, to share about a disciple, this one guy popped into my head immediately. And so I want to talk about a disciple who isn't mentioned many times in the Bible, but who has been remembered somewhat unfavorably in history. So I'm gonna talk about Thomas. But I wanna start with a question. When I just said the disciple Thomas, who here in your head immediately thought doubting Thomas? If you can just put your hand up so I can see, for my own curiosity, which seems to be most people, okay? So doubting Thomas. Do you know how many times Jesus called him by this name, doubting Thomas? Zero times. Okay, so there are no times in scripture where Jesus addressed him as Doubting Thomas. So this is a nickname that has commonly been ascribed by man, but never by Christ. And so my hope in sharing about Thomas today is that we can perhaps redeem his legacy a little bit um, and maybe see in ourselves some similarities and ultimately how Jesus responded to that. Cool. All right, so a very little bit about Thomas because actually that's all we know. (laughs) So he's one of the 12. Um, He's commonly known as Doubting Thomas, though this name is not from scripture. And his name Thomas is actually more of a title as well. So it is from the Aramaic Tioma, which means twin. And he's also referred to um, by the Greek Didymus, which I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but it is Greek for twin. So we don't know who his twin is. Um, Scripture doesn't really tell us much about his background at all. And he's only mentioned 11 times in the whole New Testament. And half or most of those times, um, he's just mentioned as in a list of one of the other disciples. So there are only three times where he's really talked about Um, three instances where he's mentioned as more than just one of the guys in a list. So I thought we could look at them today. So the first instance is in John 11. So these are all in the the Gospel of John. In John 11, we see the, the account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus is with his disciples when he finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick and then subsequently dies. And he suggests to his disciples that they return to Judea 
so to Bethany where Lazarus is, but the other disciples aren't keen to go because they know that some Jews had been wanting to stone Jesus and so they knew that this would be dangerous. But Thomas is the one who pipes in and in verse 16 it says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, him being Jesus. And so here we see Thomas showing a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Just like last week when Grant talked about Simon Peter, like he was so wholeheartedly devoted and then the cock crowed thrice. And so we see in this encounter a Thomas that we couldn't label as a doubter, right? But rather a passionate and devoted disciple of Jesus. He was even encouraging the other disciples, like let's go with him, like let's go with Jesus to the point of death. And so he reflects a very similar sentiment to Simon Peter, um, but like we heard last week from Grant, those sentiments were a few steps ahead of what, what they were willing to, um, a few steps ahead of their feet, right? So then the next mention that we have of Thomas is during the Last Supper with Jesus, just before Jesus was crucified on the cross. So this interaction happens in John 14, and I'll just read a bit of it from John 14, two to six. And Jesus is talking and he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may, you, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in this interaction, we see Jesus spending his last time on earth with his beloved disciples. And he has just washed their feet. Um, He has done some teaching. He has just let them know that one of them would betray him. And at this point here, Judas has left. And so Jesus is talking now with the 11. And Thomas pipes up. And he's not afraid to ask Jesus questions that he doesn't know. So Jesus has just said, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas is like, "Uh, no, no, I don't know the way. Um, Can you please clarify? (laughs) How can I get to where you're going if I don't even know where you're going? And he is unafraid to look foolish in front of the others. And he didn't need to pretend that he had all the answers because he didn't know. He had questions about what Jesus was saying and he took those questions straight to Jesus. And so my question in looking at ourselves is do we do this with Jesus? Are we unafraid to ask questions and look foolish in front of others? Or do we feel the need to sort everything out first or pretend like we have it all together. The final passage um, featuring Thomas and the one that has cemented his nickname in history um, is in John 20. 
So at this stage, the last one was the Last Supper, and at this stage, Jesus has died and now he has resurrected. He has appeared to the disciples in an encounter already, but Thomas, for some reason, wasn't there. So we find ourselves in John 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love this interaction. Um, Thomas will forever be known as a doubter from this interaction. But guess what? Jesus lovingly met him exactly where he was at. He knew the evidence that Thomas was needing in order to be persuaded, and he offered it to him. He didn't belittle him or condemn him for needing evidence. Instead, he invited him to reach out and touch the very parts of himself that had endured the deepest hurt, his wounds from the cross of Calvary. So sometimes I think about this and just what an intimate invitation that was. Like, when I have a wound or a scar, the last thing I would do is invite someone to touch it. But here, Jesus is inviting him to touch the parts of his body that were mutilated for our benefit. That just seems like such an expression of vulnerability and just this beautiful invitation to come so close. And then I love Thomas's response. As soon as Jesus invites him, he has a response of worship. My Lord and my God. And this is the first time in the whole gospel story that anyone has referred to Jesus as my God. So Thomas is notorious for his doubting, but he actually shows us here that our doubts can lead to a deeper, richer faith. His doubts were not coming from a place of turning away from Jesus, but they were his own wrestles as part of a genuine truth-seeking endeavor. Sincere faith does not mean that there cannot also be sincere investigation. Dealing with doubts and hesitations and questions is part of life as fickle humans, right? And they really present an opportunity to strengthen our faith. And now I should clarify what I mean when I say doubt, uh, because I'm aware the word features heavily in this message. And I don't think that all doubt is equal. 
Doubt that refuses to believe what is clearly revealed in Scripture is not healthy doubt. And I'm not referring to doubting the clear revelation of Scripture. I'm referring to the questions and hesitations that we have to deal with on our Christian journey. To have faiths, to have doubts in our faith journey is not to reject Christianity, but at the same time, having doubts is not a virtue to be pursued. It's human nature to doubt, yes, but it's not an admirable quality to embrace. And if left unchecked, doubt can become a real hindrance and danger to our faith. So there are numerous words in New Testament Greek um, that translate as our English word doubt, um, but they also translate as other English words. So the verses in James 1, um, where it talks about asking God for wisdom, it says, but he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And the Greek word that is used here and translated as doubts is also used in a number of other verses in the New Testament. And it's translated as, into English as words like discern, judge, make distinction, um, dispute, or pass judgment. When I think back in my own life, um, my father became a Christian somewhere in my childhood, um, a few years or some years after he immigrated to New Zealand from Samoa. And so for me growing up, I have a lot of memories that involve church. And um, this idea of believing in God was one that was just an assumed thing. I didn't question it. My faith was unquestioned, untested, and a faith that was mediated through my parents. And as a teenager, um, after experiencing some loss and grief, and then moving overseas by myself and away from my family, my faith was, for the first time, shaken and tested, and significant doubts crept in. And there was a time when my doubts took me far from God. It wasn't until partway through my university years that I encountered the presence of God in a way that caused me to embrace faith deeply and take ownership of a faith that was now my own. There's a beautiful quote um, in the first season of The Chosen, and I'm, I'm really not up to date on that show, but I, I love this quote that um, Mary Magdalene says to Nicodemus. She says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. And this was what I experienced as I wrestled with deep questions about the existence of God and if he was real. And if he was real, was he trustworthy? And the evidence that I was needing was not in the intellectual realm. Um, it wasn't from hearing the Bible stories that I'd heard growing up, but it was a personal revelation that would make the existence of God undeniable to me. And Jesus met me at that exact point. Um, and he gave me the evidence that I was needing to be persuaded. A powerful, tangible encounter with God in the middle of the dining room 
at my secular university in Palmerston North. I was one way, and then I was completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Oh, sorry, I, I cry a lot, so don't be, don't be concerned. <laughs> but I would be lying if I said that doubts haven't plagued me at times. There have been and continue to be many times when doubts and hesitations come. Times of hardship, loss, grief, transition, relational struggles, emotional challenges, all of these can expose doubts that are niggling within. And so can situations that require us to get out of our comfort zone. When our whānau moved to the Waikato four years ago, we knew that we were stepping into a new season, and that was exciting, um, but it was also a challenge. And as we joined the staff of East West College, which is a a missions training Bible college, we were confronted by the diversity of the global body of Christ. And for us, we had to reevaluate and rethink many of the beliefs that we'd held on to tightly over the years, mainly in reference to, to cultural norms that had become so intertwined with the gospel that it was difficult to separate them. So getting out of your comfort zone can also expose deficient theology. But sometimes it's not until we have to walk through really tough times that doubts or shallow theology gets exposed and needs to be worked through. Um, I was reading about C.S. Lewis, the author, whose first major work was called The Problem of Pain. And this book is a theodicy Um, a book trying to provide an answer on why evil and pain exists. And he was asked to write this, and in the preface he says, I must add that the only purpose of the book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. So himself admitting that this was purely an intellectual or a philosophical defense, philosophical reasoning. And it was a book that was quite well received, Um, But it's also been called distant and an unemotional reaction to this problem of suffering. While fast forward 20 years and C.S. Lewis writes another book on pain and suffering. And this one is called A Grief Observed. But this one reads quite differently. Instead of an intellectual defence, this one is almost like a personal psalm of lament because he can no longer consider this topic from a purely intellectual or philosophical point of view, but suffering has walked right into his house and has taken his wife, the cause cancer. So in this book, A Grief Observed, he can't reason from that intellectual place anymore because the pain and grief is so strong. And he wrestles with doubts and questions of faith before eventually coming to a point of re-accepting the theories about suffering that he talked about in that earlier book. All that to say, it's easy to hold convictions and beliefs and for doubts to not crop up when the living is easy. 
And it's also easy for doubts to stay at bay when you're surrounded by people who look and think and believe similar things to you. But sometimes it's not until we come face to face with pain and suffering that our faith is tested. But faith that is untested can crumble as soon as some outside pressure and uncontrollable circumstances arise. So for Thomas and the disciples, their faith was tested when Jesus was betrayed by one of their own and then crucified as a criminal. Tim Keller puts it this way, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So here we see the acknowledgement that doubt is real and should be wrestled through, eventually coming to a point where those doubts are discarded and faith in that area is strengthened. So just like when Jesus offered Thomas to touch his wounds, He didn't condemn Thomas for doubting, but he also wasn't going to leave him in that state. He tells him, do not disbelieve, but believe. So don't let your doubts set up home in your soul. They're not meant to live there. Like listen and work through them, and after long reflection, discard them. If even the disciples who walked closely with Jesus during his time on earth, if even they had questions, well, we'd be pretty unrealistic to think that we'd be more holy or full of faith than they were. We're no more pious than them. We just have the the benefit of hindsight, knowing the whole story about Jesus and having the New Testament that we can refer to. They didn't have that. And by the way, (laughs) Thomas wasn't the only disciple to have doubts about the resurrected Jesus. He just happens to be the poor fellow who wasn't in the room the other time that Jesus appeared to them. The other disciples also had doubts. But although they had doubts, they continued to follow Jesus. And this is such a good reminder for us too, to bring all of those questions and doubts to God instead of letting them drive us away from him. And I think that the psalmists provide a beautiful example of this. They are people who wrestle through doubts and questions, but they wrestle by falling towards God. So did you know that the majority of the psalms are laments? Um, Possibly, I mean, it's hard to tell from most modern worship songs that that is true, But there are these laments, and we see in them a tension that these poets hold. On the one hand, they hold the tension between the truth that they affirm and know to be true, and then on the other hand, they have the situation in front of them that shows no evidence of that truth. But the psalmists don't let their doubts and questions and complaints 
drive them from the presence of God, but rather the opposite. They bring them directly to God. They openly pour out their complaints. And time and time again, we see them, or I see them pouring out words that speak so true to the human experience. And these weren't, these Psalms, they weren't just individual songs written for one person. Like David's laments are not just for him to get his inner frustrations off his chest. These Psalms are recorded songs that Israel used for corporate worship. So these were to be sung by gatherings of people, complaints and doubts that were to be openly voiced. And as the psalmist allowed their complaints and laments and questions to come out in the open, they did this towards God. And there, that's such a beautiful example, I think, that there is no safer space to wrestle with faith than in the presence of a God who can handle it all. And what I love about the Psalms is, though they go up and down when we're reading them, they always end with praise and worship for God. He can handle our laments and our complaints if only we would be really honest with ourselves and then bring it to him. And just like with Thomas, he then tells us to let them go. Discard the doubts and continue on in faith. A faith that has now been tested and strengthened. So Thomas' interaction with Jesus not only caused his own doubts to dissipate, but they also serve as a catalyst for us to receive a blessing. In that passage in John 20, after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those who haven't seen him face to face yet believe the gospel story that he lived, died, and was resurrected for our salvation. Like this is literally every believer since that time, since none of us have seen Jesus face to face. So we can thank Thomas for that interaction that led to Jesus speaking this blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to, to wrap up by reading a poem that I wrote about Thomas um, about a year or so ago when I was reflecting on how similar my heart is to his and perhaps why I feel so strongly about his legacy being redeemed. And this poem is entitled, You Call Me Friend. Thomas, you just called him Thomas, your friend. Not doubting Thomas, like we tend to call him. You invited him in. You invited him to touch your scars. Did that hurt? And did it hurt him to see his friend wounded so? Truthfully, I'm just like him. I have my doubts, a wandering mind, a fickle heart. 
I want pretense to have no part of me. You know my everything anyway. And you don't call me doubting Sina. You just call me friend. Doubts were a part of Thomas's journey. Sorry, I need to take my glasses off now. <laughs> Doubts were a part of Thomas's journey, but they shouldn't define him, just as they should never define who we are. Jesus never called him doubting Thomas, and perhaps we shouldn't either. But also, Jesus wasn't going to settle for him to just continue on in his doubts once he himself had answered. So what questions or inner wrestlings do you have going on? Or has busyness or indifference stopped you from even bothering to grapple with the hard questions in life? Has your wrestling brought you closer to God or pulled you away? Perhaps when we wrestle with doubts, we can actually follow Thomas's example and let our doubts drive us to the presence of God so that he can meet us exactly where we are at and so that we too may be able to respond in worship with my Lord and my God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.